how do how do all of these elements fit together when we gather together, uh, hopefully in the presence of God? So we're going to start in verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So this is an introductory statement to everything that comes after it. Two key points for us. One, everyone has something. That's not the way we do church. Most of us, well, obviously when I, for me, is my job, so I have something to, I have something to share because I've prepared for it all week. But I would imagine most of you did not come in here this morning thinking, I have something I want to share with the congregation. Or e- even in the midst of worship saying, God, is there anything that you want to share with us corporately? And I'm fine with you using me as a channel of that message. That's not really how we think, and that's not how we have our services structured. You know, we have someone who stands up and does a welcome, and then Bo does worship, and then I do a message. We don't really have a lot of space, necessarily, for everybody to bring something. Now, we can't have everybody say something every week. That's why small groups are so important. That's a place for everybody to bring something. You're in a group of 8, 10, 12, 14 people 100%, everyone should be sharing on a regular basis. On a corporately, when we gather, though, there does need to be this sense, and this is maybe the application point for us, is coming together and saying, God, what is it that you want to share with us today? And don't assume it's just whatever I have prepared. Last week, uh, Bo mentioned we had somebody give a word in tongues and somebody give a word of prophecy. And I had asked him in advance to do that. And we had, if y'all were here at 9, uh, a, a lady gave an interpretation. I had several people come up to me afterwards and say that her, that interpretation was exactly what I needed to hear this week. It had nothing to do with what I was sharing at all. So for those people, if this person had not been willing to say, hey, I think God has put something on my heart, they would have left with a need unmet. And we don't want that. And so my encouragement to you is when we gather to ask God and say, what, what are you doing here among us this morning? We're all, we say God speaks to the body through the body. What do you want to share with us? I don't want you standing up in the middle of things and yelling out at all. But I do, if you feel like, hey, there's this, remember we talked last week, you kind of have a thought in your head and you know it's not yours and then you get this nervous feeling in the pit of your stomach a lot of times that's the holy spirit saying i've got you need to share this you need to come see me and we'll figure out if that's something that needs to be shared publicly and if it'd be better for you to do it or me to do it but oftentimes and this gets into the second point that's exactly what somebody needs to hear all of these things are done for the common good spiritual gifts are given to you for me and they're given to me for you it's about strengthening encouraging and comforting one another and we don't want to cut off God's channels of grace and say, well, the only people who can who God can speak through this week are Bo or me or whoever happens to have a microphone, that limits the channels of grace that God has available to him. And we don't want to do that. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpretation or if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Remember last week we said in general... Tongues are not for corporate worship. They're private. It's between you and the Lord because nobody understands what you're saying. You don't understand what you're saying. It doesn't help us corporately. And that's what Paul's doing. He's just saying, here's how these things need to work in corporate worship. If there's nobody who can interpret them, 
for the body, then stay quiet. And so again, if you have that feeling, hey, this is something that God wants to share, then you need to ask him to give you a word of interpretation. If he doesn't, then you need to seriously consider whether that needs to be shared. And if you, if you're, if you aren't sure, come ask me, and we'll figure out whether it's something that needs to be shared or not. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. That's the body should weigh carefully uh, what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. First Thessalonians 5 says this, Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. So just because somebody says something, whether that's me or anyone else, it doesn't mean that you need to take it and say this is gospel truth. This is gospel truth. Everything else is mm, some mixture. Even when, I, I mentioned last week, the guy who was in Africa on a mission trip, and this lady comes up to him, and she just reads his mail, said, this is what's going on in your life, and she was dead on, 100% accurate. And then she said, and I think you're going to get married in two years. And she was completely wrong. It's five years, he's still single. So with, with those things, that's, you want to test what's being said, and the stuff that resonates within your heart. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. Jesus says he will guide us into all truth. It, it will resonate with you. You'll say, oh, man, that is, yes, that is it. Even if it's something that's not necessarily pleasant for you to hear, you'll know it's true. It'll have the ring of truth. You want to grab onto those things. And the rest of the stuff you just want to leave. Anything predictive, we talked last week, we don't do predictions. Anything predictive, I would leave that. If there are other things that just don't really fit when you hear them, then I would leave that. Maybe that's for somebody else. Maybe they, maybe somebody got carried away. You know, oftentimes when the Lord speaks to us, he just gives us a little bit, and our human tendency is to kind of add to it a little bit, to help explain or clarify, and, it, and it's all right. But there's, there's a difference between what God really spoke and then our explanation of that. And so as Christians, we want to make sure you have a responsibility for your heart. You have a responsibility for what comes in. And so when we, we have a responsibility to be obedient, say, you know, I feel like God's putting on this on my heart I want to share. And the freedom in sharing and saying, well, what if I'm wrong or what if I miss it? The freedom that comes in sharing is it's not your, that's everyone else's responsibility to discern the truth of that. That's how those two things work together. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the saints. Uh, this idea, again, uh, you're in charge of yourself. The Holy Spirit does not possess you. He doesn't move your mouth. He doesn't make your tongue wag. You're in charge. Like, there's no such thing as an uncontrollable, or I just had to. No, you don't. Paul says very clearly, you're in charge of your body. The Holy Spirit prompts, he leads, he directs. But ultimately, he doesn't overpower. He doesn't take over. He doesn't control. We, we're responsible for that. The bigger point there, I think, that Paul is making is uh, the way we worship or the character or the nature of our worship reflects the character or the nature of the God we are worshiping. And that's what he's trying to get the Corinthians to see. What he's saying is you guys are nuts. Everybody's gathering together. They're all speaking in tongues. They're all speaking at the same time. It's chaotic. It's hyper-individualistic. It's not edifying to anyone. Remember we talked last week what happens if an unbeliever comes into that 
context. He's just going to pivot, turn around, and leave and say, y'all are crazy, and he's going to be right. And he's going to make this connection. Y'all are crazy, therefore the God you're worshiping must like crazy. Or maybe is even crazy himself. That's a bad connection to make. That's what we talked last week. Tongues is a negative sign for unbelievers. It causes them to make the wrong connection about God's character. And that's what Paul's trying to get these guys to see. Y'all have to stop doing this. God is a God of, of, of harmony, of peace. Not a God of structure, not a God of rigidity, not a God of order in terms of bullet points, but a God of peace, of harmony, of everything working together and fitting together. And when y'all Corinthians are worshiping in this chaotic, individualistic, manic way, it's causing people to draw the wrong conclusion about who God is. The takeaway for us, what would somebody conclude about God's character or nature based on the way you worship him? Just confine it to what we're doing here corporately. That's what Paul's talking about. Worship is much bigger than what we do on Sunday morning together, but it does include that. What would somebody conclude if they were watching you in worship about the character and nature of God? Somebody, if they were in our church, they might say, well, y'all must think God is deaf or not too bright because some of the songs you sing, you repeat the same thing 15 times. Does he not get it? I don't know. We may go to another church and think, y'all think God is pretty stuffy because you all stand there like this the whole time and there's no emotion, there's no joy. Somebody might say to us, y'all think Jesus is your boyfriend because you sing all these love songs and we might go somewhere else and say, y'all think God is distant and far off. Y'all don't think God, y'all don't respect God. You have people wearing, who don't even wear shoes when they're standing up here. That's, um, we may say, well, again, you think God is pretty stodgy and you actually think he cares about the clothes that you wear. And, I mean, we can go back and forth on those kinds of things. You think God is not paying attention in worship because you're distracted. You're not giving, you're not paying attention. So you must think he doesn't care about what goes on around here. And they're positives to all of those things. God is huge. He's both transcendent, he created everything, and he's imminent. He's very near to us. He is our father who is as close as our next breath. And he, again, is the king of everything that he's created. And he is holy, and we fall down before him, and he is loving. And so we can sit in his lap. And he likes he's these grand anthems of the church. He is all of those things. And he's these simple songs that we can sing. All of those things are an accurate reflection of who he is. And what we want to do is just pay attention to what we're doing. That's really the takeaway. It's not about style and do we need to sing different songs and do we dress different and do we need to enter. It's not about any of that. It's about paying attention, which is the same thing that we just said coming in and saying, God, what are you doing here? What are you saying to us today? We want to pay attention to you. And the same thing is true when we worship. God, I want to pay attention to you. I want to think about what I'm singing. And I want my what's going on with my body and with my mind to be an accurate reflection of who you are, of your character and your nature. If, if somebody were to just look at me and say, based on what I'm seeing here, I'm going to draw a conclusion about who God is. I want to make sure they're drawing an accurate conclusion. 
Paul says with the Corinthians, the way they're doing things, they're not drawing an accurate conclusion about God. And we want people, if we have unbelievers in our midst, if we have people who are seeking, who are still trying to figure out if God is real, if God loves them, if the Bible's true, if Jesus is who he says he is, our worship, we want to make sure what we're doing corporately helps people make an accurate connection and, or draw an accurate conclusion about God's character and nature. So we want to pay attention to all of those things, make ourselves available. I'm going to skip verses 34 and 35, go down to verse 36. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the saints. Did the word of God originate with you? The implied answer is no. Or are you the only people it has reached? The implied answer is no. If anybody thinks he is spiritual, or if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So Paul's just reaffirming again as he has throughout his letter. I can tell I I have a position to tell you guys what to do is basically what he's saying. I started this church and I can lead you in these ways. And this whole idea of you being ignored, he's really talking about God. He's saying if you don't pay attention to me, God might not pay attention to you. That's a heavy statement. He takes all of these things very seriously and then he gives this summary, which is what we've been mentioning. In corporate worship, prophecy is to be sought because it's in English, we can all understand it, and it's for strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. All of those are good things. That's building up the body. And so, again, we, when we gather, we want to say, God, what are you saying to us today? Tongues, we don't want to forbid, but we don't, we're not necessarily every week saying, God, we need a word in tongues. That's not, that, that's a more rare, just not because tongues is more rare, but because it's not necessarily appropriate for corporate worship unless it's interpreted. Prophecy, honestly, is just easier. You don't have the interpretive step. You're hearing God in English and relaying that word. That's all of those things that we talked about last week. So that's summary on corporate worship. Now for everybody's favorite two verses. Verse 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. Anybody want to say amen? I didn't say that. Scott Williford, who has a family full of women. <laughs> women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. There's actually no Old Testament verse that says that. That's some of the controversy with this passage. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Four options uh, for understanding this passage. I'm going to go through all four. I'm going to tell you where I land. To me, this is not, it may be a deal breaker from you to me. It's not a deal breaker from me to you. I don't feel like this is, a, this is a, one of those issues that if, if we don't see eye to eye, we can't be in fellowship with one another. There are oceans of ink have been written on these two passages. You can find people who love Jesus, who love the Bible, who are really smart, who don't see eye to eye. There's four options, and there's two that are actually, I would consider, um, orthodox, if I can say that. The other two, to me, are much more dangerous. There are still good people who hold to them. They're just much more dangerous, uh, I feel like. So here are your four options. They'll be up here on the screen. 
you can take the passage at face value, which is how we take most passages that we read in the Bible unless there's an indication that we don't. When Jesus says you cut off your hand, we don't take that at face value. We recognize that's hyperbole. That's one of the ways that teachers teach is they teach, they kind of go to these extremes to let us see their point. So none of us cut off our hands, none of us pluck out our eyes. So what we can say is, well, there's no indication that we should take this passage as anything other than straightforward. So it's a universal command. It applies everywhere in all time. Jesus says, forgive your enemies. He says, love your neighbors. This is this fits. No matter where you are, you do those things. No matter where you are, women have to be quiet in church. Another option is to ignore it, which is the other end of the uh, spectrum. You can say it's sexist. You can say it's culturally bound. You can say that was just, there was something going on in, in, there's something about Corinthian culture in 50 or 40 AD, and that's not where we live now, and so we can just reject this. We don't have to listen to it. Just like we don't necessarily, some of the passages in Peter and Paul that talk about how women dress, we don't necessarily follow those. You say, same thing, it's culturally bound. I'm going to kick it. Some people say Paul actually didn't write it. That word is interpolation. That's just a fancy word for it was stuck in there by a copyist. The Bible was written by, was copied by hand until Gutenberg had the press. And uh, it's actually the, the process by which they copied it is amazing. And the um, accuracy rate is through the roof. It's 99.8% accurate, the, the copies that we have. Uh, and so somebody, some scribe, saw something, what some guys would say is he saw something in the margin and he wasn't going to not copy it because you copied everything that you saw and he took what was in the margin and he stuck it in right here. When I was reading and I skipped verse 34 and 35, everything flowed together. It didn't, you, you didn't say, wow, you're missing a huge chunk of logic when I read that. So you can say that. You can say it's a Corinthian slogan and Paul rejects it. Throughout 1 Corinthians, you'll uh, we've looked at some things that they've said in verse in chapter 10. Everything is permissible. Paul quotes them, and then he, he rejects their slogan, but not everything is beneficial. Again, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. I think in chapter 8, there's another one. They say we know that we all possess knowledge and these things about idols. So you can look. There's several quotes in 1 Corinthians, and people would say, well, this is one as well, and Paul rejects it in verse 36. He's saying, they're saying women shouldn't speak in church, and he's saying, well, did the word of God originate with you? No, are you the only people that has reached? No, stop arguing with me about this point. Or the last thing is you can say it's a situational command. It is true. It's still binding if you're in the same situation the Corinthians are in. If we find ourselves in that situation, then this command applies. To me, number two and number three, you kind of, you need to yank. I think it's super dangerous to start ignoring things. In the Bible, if we want to say it's, it's culturally bound to what was going on at the time, that makes our culture the standard by which we judge the Bible versus the Bible the standard by which we judge our culture, and we don't want to go down that. That's a slippery slope. Uh, definition of marriage, without getting into that with Children in the room, that's one of the things that if you're going to begin to talk about what's culturally bound, that you're opening a Pandora's box for everything else that's culturally bound. And there's, there's 170 nations in the world. There's at least times 10 cultures in the world. Uh, and who, who gets to decide what's culturally relevant for us versus culturally relevant for people who live in 
Nicaragua versus culturally relevant for people who live in South Africa. It just, again, it totally relativizes the Bible. So that, to me, is not acceptable. If you want to say Paul didn't write it, again, I think you're, you're opening yourselves up to, well, well, what else did Paul not write? It's, it's in the earliest manuscripts we have. It's pretty difficult to say he didn't write it. The evidence for that is very thin. And again, then we can just decide everything we don't like. He didn't write. And there's a guy that did that. Uh, I think his name was Montanus was his name back in the back in the late 100s, early 200s A.D. He, just, he literally just cut out the pieces of the Bible that he didn't like. He cut out the whole Old Testament and he cut out a whole lot of the New Testament and, and said, here, this is what you can... And he was condemned as a heretic. So that's not the direction that we want to go either. There's also, this is, uh, we'll look at this in a second. This is 1 Timothy. If you do want to go that route, you still have to deal with 1 Timothy, which says this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So even if you want to say 1 Corinthians 11 or 14 is not from Paul, you still got to deal with this, which says women need to be quiet as well. So that leaves you with the other two options. We can say it's take it at face value, apply it across the board, take it as a situational command uh, that we use as the situation arises. Uh, I'm in the number four camp. I see it as a situational command. That's not news to you. We had just had a woman up here singing. Last week we mentioned we had uh, a, a woman give a word. We had women interpret. Penny has spoken for me a couple of times over the our time here, so that's not news to any of you who have been here, that I see it as a situational command. I'll give you my reasoning for that after we look at this take at face value, which you can 100% agree with. As well, I think it's tricky to hold on to that uh, for a couple of reasons. It, pre it presents a consistency problem. So my philosophy, the Bible's inspired by God, Genesis to Revelation. It's not a book of rules. It's a revelation of his character. It's a revelation of his nature. I think if you see the Bible as a book of rules, you're going to get twisted up really quick. Which rules do I obey? Which ones do I not? If you step back and say, this is God revealing his heart, and he does so progressively. So... Abraham, Noah, gets this little piece of who God is. Then Abraham gets a little bigger piece. He gets Noah's piece plus some more. And then Moses gets Noah plus Abraham plus some more. David gets Noah, Abraham, Moses plus some more. And ultimately it culminates in Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He's the ultimate revelation of who God is. So this idea of progressive revelation, particularly through the Old Testament, helps us understand why God seems to change. He doesn't change. He's just revealing more of himself as people get to know him better. And that takes centuries. What he, the, the God that we see revealed in Genesis is the same God that we see revealed in Matthew. It's just the God we see revealed in Matthew is more fully developed. Like Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. It's the same idea of progressive revelation. Now, we're not continuing in that. The, the New Testament's complete. It's, again, Jesus is the best picture of who God is. You can't improve. Muhammad would say, y'all corrupted everything. 
I'm the be- the Quran is a better revelation. It's a clear picture. We say no. Jesus is, he is the best picture of who God is. Progressive revelation ended with him. You can't improve upon God in the flesh. Period, dot, the end. And so that's where we're standing. That's my understanding of revelation in the Bible. Again, it's not this, it's not a list of rules that we have to follow. It's a, it's a revelation, a disclosure of God's character. And as we get to know him better, he reveals more of himself. And every one of you who's been in a relationship has done the same thing. You reveal more of yourself the longer you're with somebody. You don't give them everything on the first date, most likely, or there's no second date. Most likely, that's, that's how things work. How much more so with the God who is other than us? It would, fry our, it would have fried Abraham's circuits if he had seen the revelation of Jesus with, before he even knew there was only one God. Like, that was a huge thing. There's only one God. The Jews are the first ones to say that. So anyway, without getting into all that, that's my picture on uh, the Bible. But So that means it's consistent all the way through because God's character is consistent and the Bible is a disclosure of his character. It's going to be consistent. There's some issues if you want to take uh, women not being able to speak as a universal command with consistency. Here's a list of some women in the New Testament who are mentioned in the ways that they are mentioned. Priscilla taught Apollos, who is a apostle. Lydia and Nympha hosted house churches, and that doesn't mean that they just baked cookies for those churches. When they hosted, the, the church was in their home, and they took some leadership role. We don't know what leadership role, but they took a leadership role. Phoebe was considered a deaconess. Junia is a fellow prisoner with Paul, and the quote is outstanding among the apostles. She was an apostle. These other women, Trephenia and Trephosa, worked hard in the Lord. Whatever that, we don't know what that means, but it means they were doing something that Paul considered worthy of mentioning in a letter. Same with Persis. Philip's four daughters were all prophets. And then these other two ladies who have weird names, they contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. Again, we don't know exactly what that means, but it was something worth mentioning for him. A few scriptures, I'm not going to read them all, they'll be up here, that you have to kind of wrestle with. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes uh, from the book of Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. If women can't speak in church, I don't know how they prophesy. I don't know how, unless it's sign language. I don't know how they do that without speaking. And you may say, well, there's another context for that. And I, th- there could be. In the New Testament, I don't see the other context for that, for prophecy other than in these gatherings when they get together. 1 Corinthians 11:5, the same letter we just are looking at that says women can't talk. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, that assumes women are going to be praying and prophesying. To me, it doesn't make sense for Paul to say, women, here's how you speak in church, and then three chapters later say, by the way, you can't speak in church then why did he tell them how to do it? Let's see the next. 1 Corinthians 12, which is all about spiritual gifts in the body, there's no indication that women are excluded from any spiritual gift because of their gender. If you read through chapter 12, the word each one, or the phrase each one appears three or four times, and there's, there's no gender connotation with it. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to each one however he determines. He does, there, again, there's no picture there. There's no indication that women are um, 
not given certain gifts. You don't want to just look around can, and can, we don't want to allow our culture to determine what we believe for sure, what the Bible says is true for sure. But if you look at a Beth Moore or a Kay Arthur, it's pretty difficult to say they're not gifted by God to teach. And we can say, well, maybe they're teaching in the wrong setting or something like that. But again, this idea that God gives women gifts that are verbal. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, we just looked at. When you come together, everyone has something to say, not just the men have something to say. There's some other things uh, in the Bible as well. That's just a sampling to me of if you're going to hold this as a universal command, you've got to figure those things out. Now, I've got to figure out some things too from my perspective, but you've got to figure all of those things out. And then there's some other things. Galatians 3.28 where Paul says in Christ there's no male or female. You've got to figure that piece out as well. You've got to explain Deborah in the Old Testament who was a prophet. So there's some things that have to be taken into account if you're going to say this is a universal command and women are never allowed to speak in an assembly. Um, and you can believe that. I was poking a little bit. It's, it's fine. I'm not going to necessarily try to change your mind. And again, I don't see it as a deal-breaking issue from me to you. It could be a deal-breaking issue from you to me because you don't want to see women up here. Um, and so that no, no singing, no female singers, none of those kinds of things. And we're going to continue to do that. So if, if that's hard for you, then we probably do need to talk. So for me, situational command is the best option. It takes what Paul says seriously in 1 Corinthians. It takes what Paul says seriously in 1 Timothy. But it also takes seriously the the flow of the Bible and what we know of God's character. It allows us to be consistent with what's said throughout. So just real quick, here's my take. What was going on in Corinth when Paul said in this section on order, women be quiet? So women in general were uneducated. Only about, I think, 10% of the population was literate, and almost all of those were men. Women stayed in their, women stayed at home. They didn't go out. They didn't circulate. They didn't go to school. They didn't have tutors. They got married when they were 13 or 14, and they had babies. That's what women did. They were uneducated. Um, the church was actually very progressive for women. It pulled them in to these corporate meetings with men that they would not have allowed them, been able to go to a similar meeting with Gentiles, but they're, they're, they're uneducated. And in these meetings, it was socially acceptable to ask a question if you had one. So if you don't understand what I'm saying, then you could just blurt out your question, and then I would deal with that. It was rude to ask a question if you didn't know what you're talking about. So if you have uneducated women in an environment where it's fine to ask questions, but it's rude to ask questions if you don't know what you're talking about, what do you say to them? Stop asking questions. Stop. We could see, like, we have children here with us, and it would be difficult for us if some of our first and second graders kept asking questions as I'm talking through this. We wouldn't get anywhere. Occasionally, maybe the questions would be great and would help us with clarity, but in general, the questions would slow us down because they don't, they're, they're in first grade. They haven't learned as much as we have. They don't have the background that we have as adults. And so what Paul is saying to these ladies is be quiet. That's the short-term solution. If you read through 1 Corinthians, women were a problem throughout. They were really pushing some things that were not true, and he's having to come against them. And so what he said there, it's not just that they're asking questions that they don't know anything about. They're actually teaching some things that aren't great. And what Paul says is y'all need to be quiet. That's the short-term solution. Stop interrupting the meetings. Remember, this is about flow and you talking, you asking questions 
when you don't know what you're talking about, that interrupts the flow of what God is doing when we gather together. Remember, that's the context for this is flow. The long-term solution is talk to your husband. Learn something at home. And that way, you will have something to say. You can be, you can participate in this, but that's a long-range solution. First Timothy, again, this idea, a woman should learn in quietness, full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Timothy is in a place called Ephesus. He's leading the church there that Paul has started. And there's some problems. Um, if you look at this, uh, I think it's maybe the next slide. The situation in Ephesus was not good. If you read through First and Second Timothy, you can you can pick up on what's going on. Verse uh, three says this: This is why Paul wrote to Timothy, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And if you look at ver- chapter four, you can see what's going on. So you've got false teachers in the church. According to Second Timothy, those false teachers are getting their way are working their way or worming their way into homes and gaining control over women, again, who are not educated. They, just, they don't know any better, and these guys are preying on that and gaining access not just to the women but to their households in the church. And you see these women are then passing on things that they should not, that are not true to the point that some of them have actually walked away from Jesus. It's a crisis. It's, this is not, oh, this. it's a crisis. Paul writes two letters to Timothy in a very short span of time saying you got to get a grip on what is going on in your church because these false teachers are wreaking havoc on your people and in the context of that where women again are not educated and women are actually the vehicle for this false teaching being spread through the church starts with these false teachers who are men they're gaining access to the church through these women what he says to women is be stop teaching Because what you're teaching is not true. And so here's this blanket statement. Women, you don't get to teach anymore. You don't. That's the short-term solution. No teaching for you. What's the long-term solution? Learn quietly and in full submission. Once you know what you're talking about, well, then we we can readdress the situation. But at this point, we're in crisis mode, and you women are promoting heresy. So stop. That's what Paul says from a distance. What about this idea that you may have? Maybe you're thinking, but he seems to root it in creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That's a tricky little passage. It can look a lot of different ways. I would say, in general, just because Adam was created first does not make him superior Uh, to Eve because animals were created before Adam and we don't say that they're superior to him. Uh, It is a fact that Adam was created first or was formed first. I think one of the ideas you can take from formed is um, that Adam had a responsibility. He was theologically formed by God. God in Genesis 2.16 says to Adam, here are the rules. You eat from everything you want, but you don't eat from that tree. And then he creates Eve after. So you can draw the conclusion that God instructed Adam, and it was Adam's job to instruct Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled. Not the same thing. Eve was deceived by the serpent, and if you go back and read in Genesis what happened, she misquoted Adam or misquoted God. So either Adam was a bad teacher or Eve was a bad student. Either way, she was deceived. She said, and when she's responding to the serpent, he said, don't touch it. God never said don't touch. 
she, she was misinformed. She was deceived. Adam rebelled. There's, Paul puts massive emphasis and blame and responsibility on Adam in Romans 5. So I don't think the idea that he was formed first necessarily has anything to do with superiority. He had a role, which was to instruct Eve, which is the same thing Paul's saying here. Husbands, instruct your wives. That's what you need to be doing. Like Adam was supposed to instruct Eve, you're supposed to instruct your wives. And Eve was deceived, either again because she was a poor student or Adam was a poor teacher, before you get down this road of thinking women are inferior in terms of intellect or capacity, remember the Messiah, Jesus, he came through Mary. That It says, but women, it's actually but she, not women, will be saved through the childbearing is what it actually says, referring to Jesus' birth. So before we go run down Eve, let's remember that God redeemed humanity through a woman, and women will be saved the same way everybody else will be saved. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Women are not saved by having kids. That's not, we all know that's not true. That's not the thing. We're all saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus and standing firm in that until the end. And so that's all Paul's doing. He, before we jump and run down Eve and blame her for everything, remember that God redeemed through Mary as well. And that opens the door for women and men for women and men to be saved the same way, putting our faith in him and standing firm. So again, for both of those, to me, the situation is the same. If we have people here who, are, who don't know what they're talking about, then they don't get to teach, period. If they're men or women, you don't get to teach if you don't know what you're talking about. You need to learn something first, and then you're in a position to teach. We don't do anything where people ask questions in the middle of our services. If we did, then we would have to limit you know, if we, we let you tweet and questions or text questions or whatever, I wouldn't answer ones that were off base or that were dumb because it would take us, it would take us away from what we're trying to accomplish. All of those things are common sense. Just in this setting, the women were the ones who were uneducated, so they were the ones who were causing the problem. So that's my take on 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and women and all of those things. And you can forget all of it when you walk out the door. You don't have to hold on to any of those things. This is what I want us to do um, for ministry. Uh, this, in the past couple of weeks, we've had a boy with emergency appendectomy. We had a girl break her arm. We had a guy break his ankle. We've, had, we've got a couple of kids in the hospital right now, one in the emergency room because he's not breathing super well. He's getting better. Someone else who had tonsillectomy go sideways and had to have more surgery. We had a guy in a car wreck. That's just the physical things. That's not counting some of what's going on relationally. I've talked to some folks who've taken some hits in their marriage. I feel a little bit, we're getting knocked